0: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is
1: London. And this is a Yorkshire tea mug. Cue for the snowflakes to go crazy. Actually, there's only water in it. Well, thanks to the wonders of the internet, of course, I'm broadcasting to you throughout the entire world. So, it's my duty to tell you that it's going to be Quite grueling because we are dealing with some of the existential challenges now facing the international community. Let me start in the Levant. And let me start by putting my cards on the table. I have been proud to stand by the Syrian Arab Republic against the dozens, scores of countries who sought to destroy it and put ISIS and Al-Qaeda and their local affiliates in the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism into power in Damascus. I would have been proud of my stand even if we'd lost. I'm even more proud that we have won. Except we haven't won everywhere. The holdouts of ISIS and Al-Qaeda are living under Turkish and American protection in the Idlib province and one or two other scattered outposts. There are maybe 500 or so American forces there who put themselves between the Syrian Arab army and its Russian ally and the final defeat of these head-chopping, heart-eating extremists. I put my cards on the table too that I'm on the side of Russia in this conflict. Not because I work for Russia today, I was... On that side before I did work for Russia today. And in any case, I have never taken the view that I have to reflect the political positions of my employers, and RT has never asked me to do so. Uh, But I believe, and here I address those critical of the fact that Russia has not yet gone to all-out war with Turkey, that Russia somehow is too conscious of its geopolitical position, its overarching conflict with the United States, that somehow they're faltering in their duty to their ally, Syria. I'm with Russia. Russia is an international superpower, a multiply nuclear-armed superpower, and cannot go lightly into war, all-out war, with a member of NATO. And those of you demanding that she should are being, at best, unrealistic. And at worst, decidedly ungrateful, because if it wasn't for Russia, the black flags of ISIS would already be flying in Damascus. But there's no point in hiding the fact that it may come to all-out war. It's already all-out war between Syria and Turkey. Right now, this minute, this hour, there is all-out war between Syria and Turkey, And given that Syria's indispensable and close ally is Russia, the possibility of that becoming ineluctably a conflict which draws in Russia against Turkey, then Turkey triggers its NATO provision to bring in the other NATO powers on its side in that conflict, we could be looking at World War III. Now, some of you think that that is an exaggeration. But let's just look at what's happened in the last 24 hours. Turkey launched a devastating missile attack, not on Idlib, but on Latakia. Latakia is a very important city in Syria, and it's not the least important because it's full of Russians. It's a Russian naval and air and land base inside the Syrian Arab Republic. Now, we don't know yet because everyone has an interest in playing down what the impact of that attack on Latakia was, but it's highly likely the assets of the Russian Federation and members of the Russian military, the Russian Air Force, the Russian Navy, or the Russian Army Special Forces who are there were damaged in that attack. In the last 24 hours, thugs from the Turkish regime broke into the houses of my colleagues at Sputnik News in Istanbul, dragged them off to a fate uncertain, arrested the editor of Sputnik in Istanbul. These are grave provocations to Russia which you may recall already lost its ambassador to Turkey, uh, to a cowardly assassination from behind in the back of his head whilst opening an art exhibition just a couple of years ago. Seizing Russian assets in Istanbul, seizing journalists who work for one of those assets, namely Sputnik, is a very grave provocation indeed. And Russia, if uh, I'm any judge, and I'm not speaking for Russia, but if I'm any judge, Russia will not take these provocations lying down. And so the real possibility exists of a rattling down fast by the hour of the situation in Syria. Now, at this moment, there is a meeting scheduled for the 5th of March between Erdogan and President Putin. Erdogan's attitude, the rhetoric, and above all his actions don't indicate to me that a solution is going to be found easily on the 5th of March. And if it isn't found, then this situation may rapidly deteriorate into the most devastating of wars. There's war in India where the scoundrel Narendra Modi is presiding over exactly the same kind of anti-Muslim pogroms as he presided over when the governor, chief minister of the province of Gujarat, which was such a performance as to have him banned from visiting both the United States and Britain. That was all forgotten about when he became the Prime Minister of India. It's all about the Benjamins, you know. It's all about the filthy looker. And India, as a great country, as a great market, as a great centre of profit for international companies and their governments, had to be given a pass. Modi had to be allowed to travel in a way that he was not hitherto. And his RSS Hindutva fanatics, based on the German Nazi party, I'm not making that up, neither am I exaggerating, by their own words and actions, they have modelled themselves on the brown shirts of Hitlerism, are now openly cascading their sectarian hatred all over the capital city of India, and it's estimated that 500 Muslims have been set upon, have been burned alive, have been hacked to death, and a state of crisis now exists inside India. And I'll be talking later in the show much more about Mr. Modi. It's war on the coronavirus. Some people think that this is all an overreaction. One of them is our editor, who's written a piece which directly contradicts my own view on the issue. That's fine, this is a university after all. I'll read you his piece and then I will answer it. One way uh, or another, uh, this crisis, either because it is being overreacted to or because it is an existential threat especially to people in a certain demographic, poor, old, weak, already in poor health, is potentially devastating, contains within it the possibility of the death of millions of people. Already many thousands are dead, and new cases are erupting all over the world with very serious uh, effect. Now, right at the beginning of this crisis, I talked to you about how China had reacted to it. I praised China for its reaction, and I still praise China for its reaction, but I condemn those that didn't use the time won for them by China's swift and decisive action in order to better prepare their own populations and their own health services for dealing with this disease when it inevitably spread. This virus spreads, well, like a virus. 35 new cases in Britain just today. Hundreds of cases uh, in Italy. Hundreds, maybe thousands of cases in Iran. Thousands of cases in South Korea. None yet in the north of Korea. There are people dying as we speak of the coronavirus. Now, some may say, well, they die of other things. They die of flu in huge numbers every year. But it's my view that the lethality of the coronavirus is much greater than the lethality of ordinary flu. Uh, There's a vaccine that you can take to try and stop yourself getting flu. There is as yet no such vaccine for coronavirus. And the percentage of people who die when they get this coronavirus is higher than those who catch ordinary flu. I'm hoping, although I travel, and I travel I'm due to travel to places where they're currently quarantining thousands of people, I'm hoping to avoid it. The only question is, what price are we prepared to pay? What price are Liverpool supporters prepared to pay? What if the Premier League closes down this year's Premier League championship? Because it's already been announced by the World Health Organization that people over 60 should avoid crowds. Well, I'm over 60 and I was in a crowd. I was even in an airplane today, albeit wearing for the first time in my entire life a mask over my face. Was I? Overreacting. You can tell us, by the way, that's our first poll uh, this evening. I'll give you the question in just a minute. And it's war in the Democratic Party in the United States. All pretense has been abandoned. Elizabeth Warren, who's come fourth and fifth in every contest so far, has just openly admitted she's only staying in the race in the hope that it reaches a deadlock brokered convention uh, in the summer and that the grandees of the Democratic Party hand the nomination to her even though she's the fourth or fifth choice of actual Democrats in the country. There's no doubt at all uh, that they're attempting to steal it from Bernie. And uh, Joe Biden, although he won in South Carolina, quite decisively, is not likely on Super Tuesday to fare particularly well. Indeed, all the polls suggest uh, that the Super Tuesday result will make Bernie unstoppable unless cheated, that he will have a plurality of the delegates, such a plurality as cannot be defeated, but will not have an overall majority. And if he doesn't, it is the intention of the others to steal it from him. I actually had such a thing. In 1982, I stood to be the Labour candidate in the Rhondda Valley in South Wales. I got more nominations than all of the other candidates put together. So all of the other candidates came together and kept me off the shortlist. So I recognized in a small way what Bernie is facing in the Democratic Party. Rania Kalik, the journalist, presenter, and writer, uh, has a huge following on social media, a great deal of interest in her analysis, both of American politics and politics in the Middle East, and I'm glad to say Rania Kalik joins me now. Rania, thank you very much for coming on the Mother of All talk shows, very nice To meet you at last. I've followed you for years.
2: Yeah, right back at you. It's really good to be on. And of course, I followed you for years as well, and I've always been a fan. Thank
1: you. (laughs) So it's exciting to be on. (laughs) Rania, uh, let's start in the US, because I want to ask you uh, something about the foreign policy attitudes of the Democratic Party nominees. Would it be fair to say that Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, form one poll, if you like, a poll that is decisively against current American foreign policy, particularly Gabbard, though she can afford it because she's not really in the running to win the race. Sanders could do better, but is pretty good by comparison with other candidates in this field or in previous fields, Uh, but that Biden uh, and Warren, for that matter, represent Uh, business as usual. And the other also runs uh, are uh, probably creatures of the deep, if you get my uh, drift. (laughs) Would that be a fair characterization? (laughs) Describe uh, how important or not foreign policy is in this current race.
2: I think that's a really good way of putting it. And yes, that's pretty much true. Of course, like you mentioned, there is a slight difference between Gabbard and Bernie Sanders. I think Gabbard is Definitely to the left of Sanders on foreign policy, and also she's made foreign policy and ending wars and ending regime change wars a centerpiece of her campaign, whereas Bernie's of course, focused more on the domestic. Um, but, of course, he's saying some what would be considered in the U.S. radical things about foreign policy that would really shake up the way things work now. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's... It's unfortunate in many ways that foreign policy doesn't play a larger role in the campaign because we don't hear about it as much. Because, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Hillary Clinton won in 2016, the state's that everybody was shocked that Trump won one of those reasons is you know there was a study done that found a correlation between people who voted for Trump in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Ohio uh, being very res- being like areas that uh, have a high a high disproportionate number of military veterans and being people who are disillusioned by our endless wars and they saw Hillary Clinton as the more hawkish candidate so i do think that foreign policy could play a really big role in the election if more of it, if it was made into a bigger deal because there is a significant portion of even the Trump voting public who voted for Trump because he, in many ways, campaigned on disrupting America's endless war foreign policy, even though he didn't follow through on that.
1: Now, uh, since uh, Bernie was fingered uh, as a, as a Russian asset, a Cuban fan, a Fidel Castro fan, and so on. He has slightly gone into retreat, hasn't he? Uh, Instead of saying, uh, enough of your games, Uh, there's no Russian help in my campaign, Uh, and instead of uh, standing up to those accusing him, to me, he's done a bit of a Jeremy Corbyn and started to run away from it. Am I being unfair?
2: No, I don't think you're being unfair. You know, I think Bernie Sanders, I have to give him credit in the sense that with the issues of Cuba and Nicaragua and the sort of red baiting he's gotten over that, he has pushed back in what I think is a smart way. However, he's also, at the the same time, you could say kind of Russia-gated himself. Um, You know, he's basically agreeing with what we know was a— was a big hoax, um, was a big grift, this whole Russiagate scandal that we've been talking about for three years of Russian collusion with Donald Trump that never actually happened. And he's been playing along with it, and he's continued to play along with it, even as it's being used against him by his rivals and by U.S. intelligence agencies. I think it's extremely unwise to continue to play You know this kind of game of yeah you know I am against the Russians helping me because he's validating uh, an entire narrative that is being weaponized against him and his supporters and it's only going to get worse and it's really important he mentioned Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn when it came to the anti-Semitism you know the false anti-Semitism accusations in the UK he showed his weakness when he you know, didn't push back hard enough against it, and he threw a lot of his supporters who were being accused of it under the bus in many ways, and I fear that that is how Russia Gate is going to be used against Bernie Sanders.
1: Well, that's exactly right, and uh, you've obviously followed it. That's exactly what happened, uh, and we have a saying in, in Glasgow uh, that if you don't run, they can't chase you. Uh, They'll still attack you, but you're not running. At least you're facing them and have a better chance of repelling the attack. Corbyn chose the uh, runaway uh, uh, um, option, and apart from being decidedly unattractive, it doesn't even work. Uh, If it were successful, uh, then Bernie might be right in uh, following it. But it's unlikely in the extreme Uh, to be successful. Instead of saying, this is a hoax, this whole Russia thing, you know, they're trying to stop you supporting me by waving this uh, imaginary Russian bear uh, in front of the discussion, Uh, but it's all a hoax. And here are the reasons why it's a hoax. Instead of doing that, he has, as it were, as you just put it, uh, bought into it. And uh, it's Mm -hmm. not it's not going to go away. It's not going to stop uh, just because he has conceded that ground. It doesn't mean they're going to be satisfied. Now, um, let's move on to uh, the possibilities on Tuesday. How How does Super Tuesday look to you?
2: I mean, Super Tuesday is looking like a day that Bernie Sanders is going to sweep. All of the polls are showing him ahead in many of the Super Tuesday states. In some states, he's ahead by double digits. Um, So it's going to be a really, really good day for him. The problem, though, is while we should—it's very exciting to see Bernie Bernie Sanders doing so well, is the Democratic Party is playing this game where they're running— so many candidates, in an effort to try and take votes away from Bernie Sanders, so that he's never able to meet the threshold of over 50% that's necessary when going to the convention to get the nomination. Um, at the convention, unless you have as a candidate over 50% of the delegates, uh, then it goes to what's called a second ballot. When soup what we call super delegates, who are like uh you know unelected uh, delegates that the party picks, who are all of course you know. Uh, pro-corporate and pro-Clinton and pro-Obama and pro-Biden, uh, these people get to decide who the nominee is. And because there's like 10 people in the race, it's impossible for anyone to win over 50 percent of the delegates. So even if Bernie Sanders comes in winning 40 percent, which would be a huge plurality, the Democratic Party can and I predict will steal the nomination from him. Um, and I think that that is a conversation that that Sanders and his surrogates, and people who support him need to start having now, is what are you going to do when this nomination is stolen from Sanders? You can't just wait until it happens and hope for the best.
1: But if they do that, Rania, they are effectively handing the election to Trump because such grand larceny uh, of, Mm -hmm. uh, of democracy is going to so demotivate and demobilize the millions that have mobilized for Bernie Sanders, that it's exceedingly unlikely, surely, that they're going to go out in November and vote for, I don't know, Bloomberg or or Biden. That would be ridiculous. I certainly wouldn't. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> oh, absolutely. They know this, though. I mean, you see these Democratic Party elites are openly saying it. They're openly talking about how they don't want Sanders to have the nomination, even if it means risking the destruction of their own party. Because at the end of the day, when you think about it, Trump, you know, he might be this obnoxious, you know, buffoon to these people, but he doesn't actually threaten their their like their standing. He doesn't actually threaten... Um, their power. Bernie Sanders does. Bernie Sanders actually threatens the power that the people who run the Democratic Party hold. He threatens raising their taxes. It's not something Trump's ever going to do. So a lot of these people would be perfectly happy spending another four years being in the, you know, their fake opposition to Trump. It's been really great for them the last three years. They've actually made tons of money off of playing opposition to Trump. They'd be perfectly fine with Doing that for another four years if it means keeping Bernie Sanders away from the White House because at the end of the day Bernie Sanders actually means what he's saying. He actually stands for something and he actually poses a a danger to their bottom line in a Uh, way that Trump just does not
1: perfectly expressed now uh, I've asked other people this they all say no Uh, but it seems to me that if they steal this from Sanders He literally has nothing to lose by standing as a third party candidate, as an independent, by mobilizing the mass that he has now organized for a good purpose. He might win. He might not win. Uh, He might break this uh, Clintonite power in the Democratic Party. He might come second. The Democrats might come third. Uh, with their candidate, in other words he 'd be reshaping american politics why Why do you think he won 't do that, or do you think he might
2: i don 't think he would i don 't think Bernie Sanders would i think it 's um you know, he doesn't want to be remembered, because what would happen is he would be remembered as the guy who lost the election to, for the Democrats to Trump. That's that's the narrative that would get spun in U.S. media. And I don't think that's what Bernie Sanders wants to be remembered for. Um, I also, you know, I think it, Sanders made a mistake in saying that he'll vote or he'll, he'll get behind and get his supporters to get behind whatever Democrat is the nominee. I don't think he should have said that, especially now that it's clear that it might be someone like like Michael Bloomberg. Um, so that, the it, fact absurd. that he said Doesn't that it, It's that, absurd.
1: Yeah. How could Bernie Sanders go out campaigning for Michael Bloomberg and expect his young and, and radical and progressive supporters to do the same? It's a joke
2: absolutely and you know bloomberg stands against everything sanders is for he's a billionaire who's literally buying the democratic party and buying his ways into the poll has bought his way onto the debate stage has bought influence around the entire country i i can't imagine bernie sanders would i can't even see bernie sanders getting behind michael bloomberg but the fact is that bernie sanders had said he has said he will support whoever is the nominee and i think that was a huge mistake because i mean bernie sanders clearly is the front runner he's clearly going to win the plurality of delegates so his narrative and his talking points moving forward should be, you know, I'm not, you know, let's wait and see who wins first because I want the person who gets the most votes to win. Um, as for his supporters, I don't see, I don't see any possibility of Bernie Sanders supporters getting behind uh, another Democratic candidate, uh, you know, just so the Democrats can win if they steal it from Bernie. That would be a huge slap in the face to all of his supporters and a huge slap in the face to democracy and all of the hard work these people have done, all of the money they've donated, in their their time they've donated to getting this man elected into, into moving this movement of his forward.
1: Now, lastly, Rania, because I've got you here and you know a lot about the Middle East, how will this impact on the uh, American elections if the situation in Syria begins to seriously deteriorate as it has shown signs of doing over the last 24, 48 hours, if, if there's all-out war between a NATO country, Turkey, and Syria, backed by Russia uh, and other allies. That's gonna be a, a frightening, very frightening, backdrop to the U.S. elections. How is it likely to impact the contest?
2: Um, you know, it's funny, I don't know that it will. It's, it's, what's happening, you're right, is very alarming. It's very dangerous. This escalation between Turkey and Russia and the Syrians, uh, and it could explode into something even far more dangerous. But at this moment in time, you don't really hear much uh, from the you know you know U.S. Uh, candidates. You don't hear much from U.S. officials. It's In the last debate, they didn't even talk about foreign policy. It's like it's not on their radar, wow. um, which is often the case in the U.S. So I'm not sure how what's happening in Syria would impact the election necessarily because their foreign policy just hasn't been uh, an issue of debate, which is really, you know, says a lot about um, about the U.S. and its elections. Uh, but that said, you know, I think moving forward with Syria, it'll be interesting to see if it does escalate between Turkey and Russia. They're supposed to be talking sometime this week to try and de-escalate the situation. I don't think, you know, even though— Turkey is kind of going nuts right now. I don't think they actually want any sort of war with the Russians. That would be insane on their part. Certainly the Russians wouldn't want that. But we have to wait and see. And for now, in the meantime, the people who suffer are the Syrians. Um, the, The government side in Syria is... Uh, taking on high casualties and, you know, Turkey is just wreaking havoc and and bombing left and right Uh, and basically fighting on the side of al-Qaeda's former affiliate in Syria. They're fighting on the side of of jihadist groups uh, against the Syrian army. And the only person, again, who said anything about this, who's running for president, is Tulsi Gabbard. That's the only person. No one else is talking about it. And I think that's one of the reasons she's been able to gain such a large... And cross like such a large and diverse following um, is because there's such a hunger and an appetite to hear the candidates talk about things like what's happening in Syria. But unfortunately, from the front runners, you're just not going to hear it.
1: Now, has Mike Pence kept you safe from the coronavirus?
2: <laughs> I think Mike Pence is probably praying away the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> it is.
1: A, it, it was an extraordinary pick by uh, President Trump, a man who who more or less denies the existence of science, uh, is now in charge (laughs) of what might be a really big threat.
2: No, it's extremely alarming, and I actually think that the US the U.S., at least the government, doesn't seem to be prepared at all for it. I don't think they've prepared the public for it. Uh, the, I mean, the the spread of this virus is coming to the U.S. It's already there. I'm sure thousands of people already have it, and they just don't even know yet. Um, things are going to be shut down. It's going to impact mostly the economy. Uh, the economy is going to be, you know, damaged by this. They're talking about a potential global recession. Uh, and so far, you know, it's just— It's really, really alarming to watch this administration deal with this issue when they've cut so much funding. And, you know, also in the U.S., you have a really, you have good health care for people who can afford it, and you have good health infrastructure. But the fact that so many people... Can't afford to go to the doctor, and so many people don't even get time off work when they're sick, I think is gonna pose a serious risk in the US. The lack of a social safety net, the lack of paid sick days. People are gonna go to work sick and they're gonna spread this virus. People are gonna, you know, just stay at home or, or just, you know, keep doing what they're doing instead of going to the doctor because they can't afford thousands of dollars in medical bills, um, even if they have health insurance. So I think you're gonna see the lack, of, a social state, of, the lack of, a, of social programs in the U.S. play out in the way the coronavirus outbreak happens in a really, really negative way. Um, and it actually scares me, to be quite honest.
1: Wow, what a guest, Rania Kalik. Why have we waited so long to meet each <laughs> other? Thank you very much indeed for joining us. 54% of you think we are overreacting, and 46% say, as I do, that we are not, so get your uh, votes in. It's difficult not to uh, react, whether overreacting or not, to the scenes that we're seeing, certainly on social media, uh, of mass murder in Delhi. Uh, The videos that I have seen, and wish I hadn't, include watching people literally being burned to death in their homes and people being stoned to death by huge mobs. It is utterly horrific. It is a pogrom which is uh, taking place. But very few people understand (coughs) what it's about, what are the reasons behind it. But my next guest, Nayanima Basu, as the diplomacy editor at The Print in India, in Delhi, surely does. And I'm glad to say she joins us Now, Nayanema, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. Kindly
1: explain what happened and what the situation is now.
3: Uh, well, as you have, uh, you know, just mentioned, it was uh, literally a fire that was burning in Delhi, right in the capital city at a time when a uh, VVIP was visiting India, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump. And it unfolded from the very first day that he landed in India uh, when he was in the state of Gujarat on Monday that's when, you know, from Monday afternoon, the the fire started burning. There was this frenzied mob mob that had, you know, torched houses, shops, vehicles. A petrol pump was, uh, you know, burned down. People were trapped inside their houses when they were when they were sort of burned down. So, uh, you know, it was it was a chaotic, uh, you know, a riot that was going on, and then that continued even the the following day on Tuesday when when President Trump was to meet for a bilateral meeting with uh, with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and um, we've seen that you know although. Um, it seems that it it is, it is, it is a kind of a pogrom both the Muslim and the Hindu communities, you know, both uh, members of the community have, have suffered it majorly. This is a just to just just for your understanding in the northeastern of delhi it had taken place which is where mostly the working class uh, you know whose whose daily livelihood depend on their shops or the kind of you know daily jobs that they do uh, it depends on them so you know their their houses are burned their shops are burned they really have nothing to to go to and they're right uh, you know on the streets with their families and and and, and you know uh, if you, if you speak to the people there, if you go to the ground, you will see them telling uh, very clearly that, you know, this has been an act of outsiders who came, uh, you know, as a pre-planned, uh, you know, kind of a program that they had to do with the kind of riots that they had carried out. Uh, none of them are ready to say that it happened within the community, within the localities that they live in. And they were very clear of the fact that, you know, these were outsiders who had the plan to carry it out. They did it for good two days uh, while the police, uh, you know, sort of the the Delhi police uh, just just watched it. Uh, That is not to say that the Delhi police, uh, some of their personnel were not hit, but then, uh, you know, the the, the political leaders, both from the central government and the state government, as well as the police were, you know, sort of handing gloves in in this situation.
1: Well, yes, that's uh, one of the more disturbing uh, features uh, we've all seen, at least those of us on social media have seen, uh, the police standing by and watching this happening and thus uh, being uh, jointly severally culpable uh, for the crimes. Who would these outsiders be? Uh, um, somebody must know who they are. What, was the, what were the slogans that they were raising? What was, do you think, the purpose of this pogrom?
3: So the purpose clearly was to divide the society forever and also to bring the danger um, you know, the fear of riots and communal violence right in the, you know, and strike it right at the heart of the capital city of this big country. Now, Delhi has never really seen a commun- a communal rights to this extent for years now, uh, apart from the Sikh riots that had happened in 1984. But then that the trigger for that was something completely different this time. There was no trigger, so uh, these people, these outsiders, they definitely came in acting as they are this uh, Hindu mob. They were chanting, uh, you know, Hindu religious lines, and they were going on rampaging uh, any and everyone that 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 came in their way. So. Uh, and this has been following a pattern. If you, if you follow what had happened uh, you know earlier in Muzaffar Nagar in Uttar Pradesh, there was this, this kind of trend that is going on where the rioters come in. They do kill people, but then killing is not their only motive. Their, their motive is to also loot, uh, to sort of, you know, strip them of their wealth, whatever they have, burn down the houses so that these people are right on the streets. They have nothing to do but then, you know, almost turn beggars or, you know, uh, be at the, at the mercy of the government. So this is a trend that is to- sort of happening in India uh, for the last uh, past two communal riots, one one can see. And definitely the, the, the only purpose is to divide the society forever on the lines, on the religious lines that you are a Hindu and you're a Muslim, and that is how you should be, you know, treating each other.
1: Now, uh, Prime Minister Modi has Uh, History in this regard, of course, he was found to be or thought to be so culpable for uh, similar pogroms in Gujarat that he was banned. Whilst the chief minister in Gujarat from traveling to Britain, from traveling even to the United States, he is suspect number one, isn't he?
3: Uh, Well, a lot of finger is definitely being targeted at him because he has this past track record of, you know, watching things silently, even as the city sort of burns down. And um, which is why a lot of questions are being raised at this point of time. A lot of fingers are being raised at him. So, which is why uh, this is the time really for him to come out and state that, you know, he's there for people and, 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 and the fact that he will ensure that this never happens. However, all that we've seen in terms of response from him, was a, a small little tweet that he had tweeted out, uh, you know, asking for peace, but that's about it. We also saw the Home Minister, uh, Mr. Amit Shah, who's been, uh, who, who, who did not talk about it at all. I mean, today he was addressing a rally in, in another part of the country, in, in, in Kolkata where he mentioned everything, but, but did not mention a word about what had happened. You, you lost 42 citizens in this uh, two, three days of uh, you know, riot, which was, uh, you know, which was huge considering the, the time period within which these people um, lost their lives. And there are more number of bodies that are coming out from the nearby, you know, the, the, the drains and the, and the open sewage system that you have. All these bloated bodies are coming up. Nobody knows the real count actually. This is a situation where the government is probably taking, it, taking things very lightly. Uh, we've seen how the Delhi police is now, uh, you know, put things under control. The Prime Minister Modi also ensured that the National Security Advisor, Chief Doval, come down to the street and calm people down. But, but it was really a case of uh, too little and too late.
1: Now, uh, what would be, you see, I mean, one of the things I was amazed about uh, about President Trump's visit is that uh, Prime Minister Modi took him to the house of Mr. Gandhi. Uh, But, of course, it was the intellectual, ideological antecedents of Modi that murdered uh, Mr. Gandhi. It was these very RSS Hindu fanatics that murdered Mr. Gandhi. And yet there was Modi uh, showing President Trump around his uh, very humble cottage.
3: Uh, that's right. And that is something uh, Prime Minister Modi has been doing with other state, uh, you know, head of states. also. He did that when Chinese President Xi Jinping was here. Uh, so that has been a normal practice to, to tell the world that, you know, how India practices nonviolence. However, in practice, we've seen things have become uh, hugely different. India is now immense Polarisation and that has started um, under, particularly under this government, is not to say that it has not happened before, but it has definitely sort of accentuated at this point of time. Uh, since coming to power in 2014, we saw how uh, an innocent person like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Akhlak was murdered for something that he was eating um, uh, in his dinner, and there was, it was a mere suspicion that he was, whether he was having mutton or beef, um, which is why, and, and, and for that he was was mob lynched and he was brutally murdered. And we've seen how those uh, murderers were later rewarded. So uh, incidents like this have been happening, uh, which has, you know, resulted in a lot of piled up anger within the Muslim community also. It is not just uh, the controversial Citizenship Amendment Act uh, for which, basically, which was the immediate trigger for these riots. Um, how, but then within the Muslim community, there's a lot of uh, pent up anger that is, that is sort of simmering at this point of time.
1: You see, for those of us, and I think any sane person uh, who admires and respects India, its size, its scale, its, its uh, multicultural, multi ethnic, multi religious character. Uh, these are extremely troubling times, aren't they? Because there's the uh, grave deterioration of the situation in Kashmir. Uh, there's uh, increased repression against uh, Sikh people in the Punjab, as uh, some of them seek more home rule. Uh, within India, Uh, and now this, uh, a new axis or an old axis being uh, reopened, uh, the Hindu-Muslim conflict. It makes you worry about the future of India, doesn't it?
3: Well, it certainly does, and it also uh, concerns a lot of the youth of this country who are now witnessing, um, uh, you know, uh, with, with with a with a with a following uh, a growth rate that is that is falling every single day. Uh, we've seen that the GDP rate, which is the gross domestic product, basically the, the growth rate of India is not growing. There are no jobs happening, no uh, policy reforms are taking place. And you, so you have this bunch of youth who are educated, but they don't have jobs. Uh, so the future is definitely for them is very bleak. And then you see the kind of crackdown that is happening on university students, for students who are, uh, you know, who, who, who probably would have some kind of dissenting voice, they, they are being silent. So uh, the future of this country really looks bleak if it continues to go in this pattern. Um, a lot of uh, time the government has stated that, that issues like Kashmir and CA, they are internal matters. But even if they are internal, they are creating a lot of internal disturbance, which will be creating a lot of uh, you know, far reaching uh, impacts that will have, which probably will take a lot of time for India to sort of get those uh, uh, wounds healed. Also, in terms of internationally, India is not really getting a good name. There are countries, several countries uh, are questioning the kind of measures that this government has taken because this government, remember, came on the promise that it will do economic reforms, it will overhaul the economic situation of the country, it will create jobs, it will boost the country's growth. However, none of uh, that is, is really happening which is why the youth uh, in this country is getting hugely frustrated.
1: Nayanima Basu, thank you very much for providing that uh, vivid description of the problems of incredible India. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Are we overreacting on coronavirus? It's moving in the wrong direction for me. Yes, 55 percent. No, 45 percent. You can vote on my Twitter feed, let me take a quick break. Sue from Stafford here. I know there are other subjects tonight, but what's your opinion of how the first week of the Julian Assange hearing has gone? Sophie says, will you be talking about the Assange hearing just finished? I sincerely hope so, as it has been massively ignored. Uh, Well, not only will I be, I'll be doing so with the master, with Craig Murray, the Honourable Craig Murray, former British ambassador who has been producing, in my view, uh, the best uh, narrative, the best uh, coverage of that first week, and I'll be doing that at precisely 8.39, so you definitely don't want to miss it. But before that, I need to talk about the developing crisis in Syria, between Syria and Turkey, uh, between the Syrian government and the holdouts of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the province of Idlib, the crisis between Turkey, a NATO member, and Russia, a legitimate and legal participant in the attempt to wipe out this terrorist threat in Syria, an ally of the Syrian government in Damascus. It's all turned even more ugly and dangerous than it already was, and who better? To speak to than Maram Sousli, Syrian girl, as she is famous throughout the world. Maram, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Sorry to have to call on you again so soon after the last time. But the situation on the ground warrants it, I think. Tell us, please, how it looks from your vantage point.
4: Uh, Sure thing. Well, we have Turkey which has been invading Syria for the last couple of years. It's been uh, invading the east and the west of the north of Syria. Um, And at the moment, you know, the Syrian government is trying to take back its territory, specifically Idlib province, which is uh, not only invaded and occupied by Turkey, but also by al-Qaeda terrorists from all over the world, and was home to not only al-Qaeda leader al-Jolani, but ISIS leader al-Baghdadi as well, so uh, Turkey has been trying to stop the Syrian military from taking out these terrorists uh, that have been terrorizing the people of Idlib, um, and uh, Erdogan seems to think that he's the leader of the new Ottoman Empire.
1: Now, not long ago, in fact only a few months ago, uh, the Western media were in a lather uh, about the uh, poor Kurds, in exactly uh, this place, and were damning, condemning President Erdogan for moving his military forces into this area with a view of crushing uh, the aspirations of Kurdish people there to autonomy, and so on. The Kurds have been completely forgotten about, and the same critics uh, who were condemning Turkey for its invasion are now backing Turkey. Explain.
4: Absolutely. It's interesting to compare. You know, the UK Parliament actually issued a statement uh, condemning Turkey's invasion of Syria, Uh, you had Emmanuel Macron making statements as well, uh, asking them to pull out, and the U.S. diplomat to Syria, William Roebuck, he actually said that Turkey's invasion was led by Islamist groups on his payroll. Now, all of that is absolutely true, but they are selective when they choose to say this, when it comes to you know uh, the Syrian military trying to take back its territory and defeat al Qaeda, they don't want they, they support a Turkish uh, support they support Turkey invading Syria and supporting al Qaeda. But if it threatens the oil reserves that the us was trying to occupy in Syria, suddenly it's a problem for the UK Parliament or, or for the us because that was at the end of the day what it was really all about. Uh, the oil reserves, making sure the Syrian people and the Syrian government don't get to control their own resources, and uh, also to balkanize Syria under sectarian lines, um, to uh, ch- choose one ethnicity and make it rule over everybody else, just as the French did uh, during the occupation of Syria um, after World War I. So uh, this is just a repeat of the colonialism Um, And uh, Turkey, just because it's threatened by its own Kurdish population, got in the way of that. And that was the only reason, suddenly, the US and the UK remembered that Turkey uh, is supporting Islamists and invading Syria illegally. But they've now forgotten about that.
1: It's quite extraordinary. I know that politicians do it because a scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. Uh, what What is actually more bemusing is that people who draw a big salary as journalists and commentators and academics, uh, who obviously do know better and have some obligation to the public uh, that pays for them, they've all forgotten about it too. Now, the violence was bowling along uh, at a certain level, uh, but it dramatically uh, took an uptick when uh, 33, at least 33, Turkish invaders were killed. Variously, it's said, by Syrian army artillery or Russian artillery or Russian airstrikes. Uh, Which was it, first of all, and what has been Turkey's response to that?
4: Well, we don't actually know who it was, you know, the Russians and the Turks seem to agree that it was the Syrian military that was, uh, that could take credit for the death of 33 invaders. Um, but it may very well be Russia, and they would like to uh, send a message to Turkey sort of under the table by saying it wasn't us, but, you know, it was obviously the uh, Russian Air Force that was flying in the air for most of that time. Um, And there was a lot of targeting of these convoys at that time. So unfortunately, you know, it seems that at the moment, Russia, well, once this happened, the reason this happened is that we kind of all assumed, or at least I did in my analysis, I thought that Erdogan is at least somewhat rational, at least somewhat intelligent. Surely he wouldn't stand against Russia and Syria in Idlib and humiliate himself because NATO is not going to back him up. And surely he wouldn't be foolish enough to go it alone, even he given his history, and yet he's proved us wrong. He is going ahead and escalating um, and acting like a mad dog in the sort of political speak, you know, the, the mad dog doctrine. So he, um, perhaps, you know, Russia also wasn't expecting that from him, because since that escalation, you know, he escalated before the 33 soldiers were killed. He sent more and more soldiers into uh, Idlib, which was Nothing to do with the agreement that he signed with Russia. The Sohi agreement was uh, signed and Erdogan agreed that he would set up observation posts to make sure there's a continuation of the ceasefire. And during that time, he was supposed to get rid of the Al Qaeda elements in Idlib. And of course, he didn't do that because it's impossible to do because the vast majority of the insurgents that the, t- Turkey supports in Idlib are al-Qaeda, so they can't get rid of them. So they were just buying time and, in, in, you know, entrenching, and uh, they, they basically, the agreement's thrown out the table because it's been a year and a half, al-Qaeda is still there, and, uh, you know, Erdogan's no longer just observing, he's invading and killing the Syrian uh, soldiers as well.
1: Now, uh, he's, he's not just escalating. In Idlib, uh, he, he attacked other targets elsewhere in Syria uh, this week. Tell us about those.
4: Yes, he's been uh, attacked Quares Air Base, which is a very important air base that uh, survived the entire war. Um, And he uh, attacked it with artillery and destroyed much of it as well. Um, And it's not only Turkey that's been doing this. Uh, Israel has also been supporting Turkey by bombing Damascus and the south of Syria at the same time, and even now doing so. And you know, we shouldn't forget what is Turkey at the end of the day but a NATO power, an arm of NATO? And uh, Turkey even now uh, produces the boots that the Israeli military wears. So in a sense, Turkey has been the shoe of Israel, you know, they're acting as the shoe of Israel. and I. It's at odds, really, with the Turkish people and what they claim to support. And Erdogan claims to support Palestinian causes. He invited Ahed Tamimi to speak, and yet he is, uh, you know, aligning himself with Israel, doing trade with them, uh, providing uh, clothing for their military. And uh, you know, the, the Turkish ultranationalists—they're not even ashamed of this. Um, so, at the end of the day, you know, Turkey is just a, a pawn of the empire, the greater empire the uh, NATO and Israel empire.
1: Now, uh, President Putin is meeting with Erdogan on the fifth later this week. What are you expecting to come out of that?
4: Well, that's a very good question. You know, uh, it, it depends also on the position that the Syrian and Iranian governments take. And at the moment it seems that. Syria is going all the way, and Iran hopefully will back us up there, because uh, we haven't stopped, uh, the Syrian government continues to shoot down Turkish drones, the same drones that attacked Syrian government soldiers, and uh, we still have our sights on returning our territory every inch. So uh, it's hard to imagine that Russia would be able to uh, you know, stop the Syrian military from uh, the, the momentum that they have. This, Really strong momentum that we've seen in the last few weeks—a blitzkrieg, you might say. Um, So the question is, how will Putin talk Erdogan down and make him realize that it's only going to get worse from him for him from here? Because he's kind of bitten off far more than he can chew. And uh, he's trying to juggle these balls in Libya. Even he's invading Libya. Uh, he thinks he's the new Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, as I said. And pretty soon, one of these balls are going to fall, and he's going to end up in a position he couldn't even imagine. Uh, so uh, hopefully, uh, Putin will show a lot of resolve in his meeting with Erdogan. At least that's what we want as Syrians. Now
1: uh, you say that uh, that uh, Erdogan is, of course, uh, a member or Turkey is a member of NATO, and of course that's true, but NATO singularly declined his invitation to respond to their Article 4 uh, maneuver. Uh, It uh, issued some words of solidarity, but uh, certainly has no present intention anyway of going to war with Russia. At the same time, uh, you see, Erdogan is not much liked in the East and not much liked in the West, and doesn't seem to mind that. Uh, His action of opening the gates for thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of refugees uh, from Turkey, Syrian refugees, but also many other refugees that are in Turkey, for which he's already been paid to stop them coming into Europe. The European Union paid him a very large sum of money to keep these refugees in Turkey. He's now opened the gates, and these people are streaming towards Greece, which has closed its border, and now there's all hell uh, broken out on the Greek-Turkish border. Uh, What kind of maneuver is that? Who is that supposed to win the hearts and minds of?
4: I think in his mind, he's punishing Europe for not, or NATO for not backing him up as strongly uh, against Russia. Um, Article four, as you say, as far as I understand, it it should be the Turkish homeland that is attacked before NATO acts and that hasn't happened. So he's the one who is attacking a neighboring country. Um, And of course, realistically, NATO wants to use him to attack Russia. They don't want to put themselves in that position. Turkey's always been like the tip of the sword, um, with very little benefit to itself, which, is, which boggles the mind, because Erdogan had the opportunity to shift towards the east. Uh, recently, it seemed as though they were, he was getting uh, more positive talks with Russia. They were negotiating peace treaties. He might have uh, received the S-400 air defense system. Um, and that was putting a lot of pressure on the United States to pull out of Syria um, and stop supporting the separatist cause of the, you know, the Kurdistan, which affects Turkey as well. But he seems to have just thrown all of that away and gone back to, uh, NATO, please help me. I want to be a part of Europe too. You know, just at the end of the day, he drops the east at the, pin, at the pin, and the west, he still continues to beg for their support and love, and they always, as usual, reject him. So, and you know, Turkey as a whole. So, when it comes to the refugees, unfortunately, uh, he's using them as a, a weapon against Europe. And to their own detriment, as far as I have heard, uh, he's sending buses of refugees to the Greek border. He's like commissioned buses to take yeah, them yeah, there. He he's and paid for them. the buses. He paid yes, for the
1: buses, yeah.
4: And people are getting killed, uh, uh, getting, drowning in rivers, uh, you know, in the cold forest. He's just sort of dumped them in the woods and said, On you, off you go, to Europe you go. So it's not really to the benefit of the Syrian or other kinds of refugees uh, that he's opened that border. You know, it, it doesn't really help. So um, it's, it's not like he's a humanitarian here. Uh, so yeah, he's trying to punish Europe for, uh, not backing his results, and he's painted himself, as you said, in a corner, because now the whole world is, is turned against him. Even the uh, Pentagon spokesman came out and said, well, actually, the Al-Qaeda terrorists in Idlib are making life horrible for the people inside Idlib. They are uh, shooting women for adultery, They're, uh, if, if people try to escape. They bombed their buses. the bus convoy in Fu and Cafria, killed two hundred civilians. You know, They have these religious courts and they control every piece of people 's lives and they behead people in the streets and cut off people 's arms i mean it 's been a nightmare, and uh, you know it, it, even though the u s state Department has openly said this, you have the other wing of the u s the, the Pentagon make, you know making this statement, that's obviously true, that, that Turkey and NATO are supporting Al-Qaeda. So uh, it shows that he is, Erdogan is not popular, nor in, in the East or the West, as you said. The only seem, people that seem to like him right now is, are Israelis.
1: Yeah, that'll not go far. Uh, Madam Sosli, thank you very much again for joining us. We've got the Honorable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, on the line on the Julian Assange uh, story. Ambassador Murray, thanks for joining us again. Uh, You've been uh, extremely active uh, from early morning, queuing outside the church at uh, the uh, court, rather, at, uh, I call it a fort, actually, uh, down in uh, Woolwich, and then dashing home uh, to write it up, then dashing to meetings to talk about it. Give us your overview of how the week
5: was, um, just horrible. I mean, absolutely terrible. The uh, the place is, as you say, it's like a fort. It, it's a, a kind of maximum security court inside the prison. It's designed especially to keep people out, so nobody can see what's happening in there. The conditions in which Julian are kept are just awful. It's continually being strip searched and cavity searched and harassed, he's not allowed to have any papers uh, to keep his papers uh, in order to prepare for the next day's court hearing. In the court hearing himself he's kept in a an armored glass box where he can't communicate instructions to his lawyers and can't properly hear what's going on. Uh, you've got a magistrate who doesn't pretend to be listening to the defense and makes no you know, secret, really, of their bias, um, and you've got a prosecution which is making the astonishing case that he's being extradited under the US-UK extradition treaty, but that clause four of that treaty, which says you cannot be extradited for political offenses, but that clause does not apply because the treaty is not law. But the treaty is the basis of the extradition. Uh, so you know, the, the arguments really are quite nonsensical um, and it, no, all in all, you know, and to see Julian, you know, not looking well, uh, looking distracted, looking like it's hard for him to concentrate, kept in terrible conditions. It, it was an example of the crushing power of the state. And um, you know, I, I'm still a bit shell shocked by all of it, to be quite honest.
1: Now, uh, uh, the whole thing is Kafkaesque, but let's uh, go back to the first of the uh, atrocities that you've just adumbrated there. How is it legal for someone who is in a trial not to be allowed to read papers, to take them back to their prison cell and go through them in preparation for the next day's hearing? How is that even legal?
5: It's not legal. It can't possibly be legal. Um, But the difficulty is that um, the magistrate refuses to intervene. She says that she has no jurisdiction within the prison, so she can't tell the prison service uh, that he has uh, to be able to read his papers. Strangely enough, not only the defense, but the prosecution uh, said to her that it's quite normal for her to, to, even if she can't, Issue instructions quite normal for her to request for prison to let him have his papers, but she refused to do so i' have no doubt whatsoever she's being instructed by the the state as to what to do, but you know you've got situations where everyone who can intervene has intervened about his conditions. The United Nations have formally protested about his conditions. the Red Cross have protested there have been behind the scenes protests from you know uh, major world figures. Um, and the British government simply ignores it all. Uh, It it really is um, absolutely astonishing. What's legal and what's illegal doesn't seem to matter. The state is going to do what it wants to do anyway.
1: Well, she even said she had no jurisdiction, never mind in the prison, in the court. Uh, She could not allow Julian to come out of the armoured bulletproof glass box in which he's sitting and join his lawyers. Uh, so as better to communicate with them. And this was in defiance not just of Julian's counsel, but of the prosecution counsel.
5: That's very true. Um, And in the end, the the defense counsel produced all kinds of examples uh, of the law and, and all kinds of previous examples of people who were allowed out of the dock and to sit with their lawyers, and incidentally Clive Ponting contacted me to say during his trial he was allowed uh, out of the dock and to sit with his lawyer, and uh, Julian of course has been through terrible traumatic time and and thus has psychiatric conditions, and um, the defense uh, quoted the regulations that say it is normal for prisons with psychiatric conditions to be allowed to sit next. Uh, to their lawyer that is the guidance for what you ought to do uh, but still it's not allowed because i think it's 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 a deliberate part of the torture process if you like you know it, it's a deliberate part of crushing this man and trying in effect to kill him within jail but the, the court has a psychiatric report before it which says that they uh, from uh the official psychiatrist saying that he will not survive uh, if they extradite him, but they, they believe he will succeed in killing himself. Um, uh, and so I, I think it's, it's a deliberate instrument of torture, in effect, this glass box.
1: How extraordinary. I'm going to let that just sink in for a, a moment. Um, the state's actions are explicable because of the kind of state that we have. A scorpion stings because it's a scorpion. What is less easy to understand and even more despicable is that Julian's fellow publishers, journalists, and broadcasters are either completely ignoring all of this, even though they must be reading your estimable blog, but they're pretending they don't know it or, in some cases, they are actively participating in the crucifixion of Julian Assange. How do you account for that?
5: It's astonishing, isn't it? Um, It it seems that they think if they take part in this, then it won't happen to them, you know, because they'll be seen as being on the side of the state and therefore uh, helping uh, uh, helping the crucifixion of a dissident publisher is not a threat to other publishers if they're not dissidents. Uh, and, and that's the only way I can see their their psychology, and the the ability of them to shut it out and simply pretend it is not happening when it's happening before the eyes of the world is is astonishing. Uh, and, and also, you know, this has got much more broadcast time in. Continental Europe than it has in the UK
1: mm.
5: you know, Every day I've been doing interviews with mainstream news media from Germany and France and Denmark and Switzerland You know who seem genuinely concerned? Uh, here in the UK, it- it's simply been shut out
1: What happens next Greg?
5: Well, there's an adjournment now until the uh, the middle of May then we get into the actual Evidence And that's quite interesting because the very first evidence that's going to be called is going to be the evidence of that he was spied on in the embassy and in particular that his privileged legal conversations uh, with his lawyers were spied on and that the, uh, the tapes of all that were sent to the CIA, to the American government, just trying to extradite yeah. him. And that in itself, in any normal legal proceedings, would have the proceedings chucked out. Instantly, you know, if, if attorney-client privilege is being broken by state spying, by the state that's bringing the charges, uh, there's no genuine judge uh, in the UK or the US who, who would contemplate that for a moment. That That is itself sufficient grounds to dismiss it. But um, I'm not expecting that to happen, but the evidence is going to be very interesting.
1: Now, uh, well, maybe they're going for a mistrial. I mean, one reading... I appreciate it's perverse, uh, of the sheer scale of the abusive process to date Uh, could be so that the judge will say, we can't actually proceed with this because it has been thoroughly corrupted as a process.
5: Well, I think that's something any reasonable judge would have have already said before now, uh, because, of course, the judge doesn't... Seem need to. If, if the judge conducting the trial is going to declare a mistrial, they don't usually get to the end of the process to do it. Um, you do that probably by now. Um, I mean, what what people are saying to me is, it seems very, very likely on all this that on appeal it would be one. You know, at the High Court or the Supreme Court, judges aren't going to put up with this kind of thing. And I think that's probably true. I think that is probably true, but. I don't think Julian would survive the two to three years in jail it would take to get that far.
1: Why is he in Belmarsh, Craig?
5: Oh, goodness, I and mean, that's the fundamental question. Somebody who published, and what he published was the truth. We must always remember this. He didn't publish any lies. You know, All he published was the truth about government guy, crimes and corruption. And he's been treated at least. On a level with and arguably he 's being treated worse than the most hardened terrorist murderers uh, he 's being treated as the most dangerous and violent man uh, in the country, uh, you know, which very very plainly he 's not he, he 's not involved in any violence whatsoever so this, this determination it 's a determination to kill him uh, i 've no doubt about that and it's because he threatened the powers that be. He, he was responsible for the, the biggest ever uh, revelation of of, of of the the ill and, and the evil that government can do, uh, and in, he's viewed by those who control the state as a as a as a major threat to them. Um, but to see the machine acting against him in this way, and to see the the apathy with which that's um, greeted by uh, the vast majority uh, of other journalists um, is very scary and very disillusioning.
1: A butterfly crushed on a wheel, but at least that particular butterfly, Mick Jagger, uh, had uh, a lot of coverage, including from mister Reese Rees-Mogg, who penned those words as a, as a Times uh, editorial. Uh, we both know Julian well and we're both broken-hearted at his calvary. Uh, Anything that people can do that you can say now? What can people do who are watching this, listening to it, just as upset as us, what should they do?
5: I think we, you know, we need to get active. I do think people should, I I, I know it's a, a cliche, but people should contact their members of parliament. Uh, As you you know, members of Parliament are actually quite sensitive to what's in their their email box or their post mail and if they get 30 or 40 people uh, contacting them on a subject they start to think it might be something on on which hundreds of their voters might might base their vote. So so I do think making plain that people care is important. Um, When we uh, get back again I'd like to see more people outside the prison more people protesting to to drive home the fact that this is a a political um uh, charge you know that this uh, and, and that this is a, a political persecution people don't turn up hundreds of people don't turn up from all over the world outside outside prison courts uh, for ordinary criminals and julian is not an ordinary criminal um and as well Um, you know, organize, put pressure on journalists and put pressure on the media.
1: Honorable Craig Murray, thank you very much for that update. I'm sure we'll be asking for your advice again uh, when this case returns in May. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. China moved mountains, literally. It built hospitals in days. It moved mountains. It uh, disinfected entire cities. It stop people moving around it took draconian centrally controlled centrally planned action and appears to have stopped the rise of the outbreak but of course Chinese people travel all over the world and in any case there's no reason necessarily to believe that this virus only ever existed in china it's now uh, affecting people who've never been in China nor had contact with anyone who has ever been in China. And so there's every reason to believe that as the health authorities are now beginning to realize that we are in my view at least, not over prepared or overreacting, but under prepared and under reacting. And that the difference between China's approach and our approach is, in microcosm, the difference between their form of society and ours. After all, if you were in the United States and thought you just might have the coronavirus, you'd do anything other than present, because as soon as you present at a doctor, at a hospital, as someone who might have the coronavirus, you're looking down the barrel of a medical bill of many thousands of dollars, maybe much more even than that. But enough from me, I'm merely an enthusiastic amateur. Let's talk to our old friend, Dr. Ranjit Brar, right on the front line, in scrubs, a man who's an expert, not just on health and the parlous state of the British Health Service, but an expert on China too. Uh, Dr. Ranjit, thanks for joining us again.
6: George, thanks very much for having me with you.
1: Deal with this dichotomy that we've been struggling with tonight. Roughly half the people think we're overreacting and roughly half the people think we're not overreacting. Where do you stand and what should our approach be?
6: Thanks, George. It's a a complex question, I think, and um, I haven't listened to your whole show. I'm sorry I've been working, but I've just caught the last few minutes of the debate. And it's an area where, if you like, the medical, the political, and the economic are closely intersecting. And that makes it a difficult question to comment on with a lot of competing interests. In terms of the medical, coronaviruses are not new. Uh, We've had multiple outbreaks in the past. So it is a very, I mean, a a virus is not actually a a complete life form. It requires, it it basically uh, is an infective particle which is able to hijack the reproductive mechanism the protein synthetic mechanism of a cell in order to cause its symptoms. Uh, and it does seem that this uh, coronavirus is more infective than the SARS virus. But on the other hand, its effects are a lot less lethal. Um, the actual number of cases that we've seen around the world, uh, around 80,000, 95% of those within China, in, mainly in the Wuhan area, and I, and I agree with you, your last comments I heard, that China have done an amazing job. I was talking to a colleague of mine who's a virologist. Uh, he was astounded at the job. Uh, he's a British uh, virologist. He was astounded at how well China had done managing the outbreak. Firstly, to actually recognize that it's a new pathogen that you're dealing with is not um, a straightforward forward and regular everyday occurrence. An unusual cluster of respiratory infection was seen, and China is extremely advanced, both in its medical care and its um, immunology, and of course, its genetics. So it was able to sequence this virus very quickly. So relatively simple, single-stranded RNA virus, and they have actually already come up with um, a, a medicine that they're testing, an antiviral medicine, that was already on their shelf, that they found to be effective against this, and it seems to be having good results with a high safety profile, it's very early days to say. In terms of the spread outside China, it's a complex thing as well. So it's clearly it is spreading, and that's reflective of many things. It's reflective of the fact that we used to think of Britain as the workshop of the world, really now China is the workshop of the world, and is intimately connected in terms of its transport links and economic infrastructure with the entire world. That's of course put it to a degree at loggerheads with the United States. And that plays out in a number of ways, military, political, diplomatic, and economic. Um, But it's certainly true that, you know, we should be cautious of this virus. Um, Overall, is it a pandemic? It's interesting to see that the World Health Organization haven't declared it a pandemic, because actually the numbers, there's no strict definition of the numbers necessary to declare a pandemic. Um, it's quite possible to declare it a cluster or a localized outbreak. There have been very few cases outside around the world. What do we know about its mortality and how dangerous it is? Well, the picture is, as I'm sure you've noted in your program, is emerging. So that it's quite a dangerous illness for an 80-year-old to get, but someone who's younger than nine probably is asymptomatic, no one's died, and, you know, it's, for them, so really almost trivial. Where it becomes dangerous is if a large enough number of people in the population, in the world's population get it, then even a very small mortality can result in a large number of deaths and a large strain on health infrastructure. Um, stop me if I'm going on too long, George.
1: Not at all. Uh, it's a, a dazzling, brilliant uh, explanation. Let's move on, though, to that point. Uh, I made the point, maybe some might think it a cheap point, but... If I were in the United States, I'd be loath to present uh, with the symptoms of the coronavirus uh, because I couldn't afford it. I can't afford to take time off work because nobody will pay me if I'm not at work and I can't afford the medical bills. I'm just an ordinary Joe in the United States. Uh, I'd I'd be scared, very scared uh, of getting it. In Britain, where we have a health service, at least for the moment, uh, i'd be worried as to whether the hard-pressed nhs uh, where trolley medicine is becoming a norm in some places would be able to cope with a big outbreak here
6: i think that's an entirely reasonable point so when we look at systems of course i mean there's an undercurrent a subversive undercurrent in the way that this outbreak is portrayed in the media no credit whatsoever has been given to china for their incredible efforts i think they've moved heaven and earth, very successfully. Um, They themselves have pointed out that a certain doctor who initially raised alarm, seemed to have initially met with some resistance. That's not unusual in any system. And in fact, they've subsequently uh, looked at anti-corruption officials to ensure that no suppression of this valuable information was ever taken place. But there's a kind of gray propaganda, what used to be referred to in the old Soviet days, we used to have an information research department, George Orwell was actually a member of that, who were systematically placing negative propaganda stories against the Soviet Union in our media. I mean, they haven't gone on a long away. that that's a kind of modern existing phenomenon, but of course Soviet Union is no longer the enemy. China is a major enemy of our country and they're constantly going on about the subversive command and control economy and trying to say in some way that this is the fault of China, of course, you know, diseases are as old as humanity. But there's a brilliant book, I don't know if you've read it or any of your viewers have read it. I recommend it to you if you haven't. It's called Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. And it talks about the clash of old civilizations with new civilizations and the way in which infection, actually, and resistance to infection, grew up with densely populated human civilization. So it's as old as, uh, really, human beings inhabiting cities, living closely with livestock and other animals and vermin and parasites. And the transmission of disease backwards and forwards between the two is an age old phenomenon. We've seen many very significant outbreaks of health problems. Um, I I suppose flu is one that that is important to compare it with and we can come back to that. And certainly we could talk about the world flu pandemic of 1918, which is is an interesting uh, um, analogy. But just coming back to the point about how does one prepare you know care for your working class population and the overwhelming population of every country is working class in britain yes we have an nhs i mean in terms of preparedness you know the nhs is not well prepared for major strains upon it because we're operating at absolutely maximal capacity part of the pfi initiative and the constant drive to um Really, privatised the NHS, which has come to a very advanced stage now. With Simon Stevens, who is formerly, actually, chief executive of uh, one of the chief executives of the International Department of United Health, a huge insurance company, uh, has come back, and now he's actually running our NHS. I don't know how many of your viewers will be aware of that. And there's a constant drive towards privatisation and the Private Finance Initiative, which redeveloped our hospitals using capital essentially from banks and corporate finance meant not only is it hugely draining of our resources in terms of the mortgage repayments. Uh, you know, we borrowed 12 billion and we're having to repay 19, So it's a massive, uh, it's eightfold we're having to pay back what we borrowed. So it's, a, it's not been a saving, it's been a massive drain on the current financial balance, which is why every single trust in the country is actually in debt now. And that debt is being used to drive further austerity measures and despite Boris, having come to you know, in smashing the red wall, and promising to do something about the um, uh, the underfunding of the NHS, is saying that Brexit is going to materially benefit the NHS. He himself came out only a few weeks ago with saying, "Well, actually, you know, this chap, Simon Stevens, has you know too much operational control, and Boris finds himself unable to affect the financial management of the NHS." Part of that PFI was a constant reduction. As they redeveloped every hospital, there was a reduction in the number of beds in every hospital. So that actually, while we used to have cottage hospitals, where we used to have a certain amount of redundant capacity, I can tell you that every hospital in the land basically operates at full stretch all the time. It's almost like hot bedding, you know? Like as soon as one patient is out, quickly clean the bed and new one comes in. It's not good conditions for controlling infection. It's not good conditions if there's any kind of extra stress and it's a constant concern that I've had throughout my career for the last five or 10 years, certainly, of not being able to get elective surgical patients into beds because emergencies are filling those beds already. So the NHS is at a real straining point, and I don't wanna panic monger, but everyone who recognize, who works within the NHS will recognize that picture that I'm painting. That's a fact that no politician can speak away. So were there to be, a, I mean, currently I do have to say, There's like 30 cases. I think there's now been one death of a British man from a cruise ship. You can't call that a pandemic compared to almost any other disease that we're talking about. And we mustn't forget that flu, when we talk about just straightforward influenza, affects hundreds of millions of people a year and probably from respiratory deaths alone, causes 500,000 deaths worldwide and total deaths, probably a million deaths worldwide. So absolutely dwarfs currently the SARS pandemic. And it's in that respect that I think a lot of your viewers will say there's an overreaction the way it's being portrayed. But in terms of our preparedness to deal with any kind of extra strain on the NHS, I agree with you. There there are real issues with the ability of the NHS currently to cope.
1: Dr. Ranjit, thank you for that really brilliant tour de force on the political, medical and economic issues that are thrown up by uh, this a potential crisis, not yet a pandemic, Uh, but of course uh, there are other countries which started out with 30 cases and now they have hundreds of cases and one or two of them, uh, thousands uh, of cases. Is there anything that we should be doing that we can tell our viewers and listeners tonight? I was alarmed as a man over 60 who goes to football matches Uh, to be told that people over 60 should avoid big crowds. Uh, Maybe I should go and watch Manchester City, there's never much of a crowd there. Uh, But uh, I support someone else. uh, And uh, I'm I'm amongst big crowds uh, all the time. Should we be avoiding uh, crowds? Should football be being canceled and so on?
6: I think it's a really good question. I think the high risk areas are you know, the London Tube is going to be a hot spot. Should we come to a generalised infection, it's a hot spot for getting flu. I mean, uh, people in London who use a tube will recognise that they catch flu on the tube. They're used to people sneezing in the densely packed trains in the morning, and of course, you know, this is a, a, a virus which um, basically is spread by by airborne droplets from coughing and sneezing. Um, I won't go into why that is, but essentially, there's an ACE uh, angiotensin converting enzyme receptor on it which localises. Um, and makes it uh, able to penetrate the endothelial lining uh, of the lungs. So it's, it, it is a, and it is an extremely infectious agent. There's no question. So you know, if it were to become generalized, yes, it's reasonable to avoid crowds. Right now, I guess airline travel would be you know, a place where you're likely to catch it. I myself and my wife, my wife's from China, we were due to go on a, a long break over Easter and see her family in Hong Kong. She has elderly relatives. We despite thinking that the chances of catching it overall are low, given the numbers, are concerned we don't want to be the ones who are spreading that vector to an elderly population. Well, we'll be safe, our children will be safe. That's precisely the danger in that, at the moment, we can't be absolutely sure how far this will spread because the majority of young and middle-aged people who catch it will be almost totally asymptomatic. So there are dangers of spreading it. Yes, the danger is in the crowd. But I must emphasize, at the moment, there are relatively small numbers, and to compare to other health emergencies, you know, I think China's done a fantastic job of limiting it. It is obviously up to other countries to intercede, and I understand why, you know, uh, Gabriel Jesus, uh, Dr. gabriel Jesus, the leader of the World Health Organization, would be particularly worried about less developed countries, because where they don't have the ability to test, they don't have many medical facilities, um, and the population are more or immunosuppressed, they're at higher risk. And probably, you know, probably that's the reason that there were massive pandemics. For example, the world influenza outbreak in 1918 killed between 50 and 100 million people. But it that, of cold, course, came killed, on the heels
1: of the war. Uh, it killed more people than the war.
6: It did, but of course it came on the heels of the war, which meant that soldiers were moving all over the world. Soldiers and the general population were malnourished and therefore immunosuppressed. And for that reason, it, you know, it, was a, it was a consequence, not just of the pathogen itself, but the complex way in which that interacts with society. And when society is poor and depressed, and you know, there's a world crisis now, and they may say that the economic crisis was over. In fact, they're saying it's being reignited and saying that this virus is the outbreak. If one virus is enough to precipitate world economic crisis, it tells you something about the precarious state of the economy. So it's a slightly more complex phenomenon than that. But of course, um these things can spread rapidly around the world
1: well look i'll tell you what um i've listened to mike hancock today and i've listened to dr Ranjit brah and i wish the latter was the health secretary but don't comment on that because i don't want to put you in any trouble thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother thanks. of all talk shows let's take ian in hounslow go ahead ian
7: hello uh, george
1: nice to hear from um, you
7: yeah, good to speak to. you. Now, you were talking about Syria yeah. earlier in the show. Mm. I don't know whether you've noticed, but the, the mainstream neoliberal media has gone into overdrive on propaganda against the uh, Syrian Arab, Arab army uh, as it's on the verge of basically purging the republic of these Islamists. And they're claiming they're Syrian rebels. But you and I, George, no, they're not even Syrians. They're from no, everywhere they're, else. They're from China.
1: Syria. They're from, they're from everywhere except Syria. Exactly. They're from, they're from Xinjiang in China. They're from uh, uh, Chechnya in Russia. They're from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they're from Wales and England. From Stockholm and Paris. Hardly any of them are Syrian. They don't even speak Arabic.
7: The only Syrians to those being held hostage, being used as human shields against the syrian arab army of liberation
1: you're absolutely correct and every journalist writing it knows it ian they know this they know they're not rebels they know they're isis and al-qaeda they know they're not syrian they're chinese and russian pakistani bengali from everywhere except syria they know that they're deliberately no. deceiving their viewers and no, their no, readers. No. Deliberately.
7: Now, some very august and senior people have talked about the Duma hoax, and that's what they've called it. And I'm talking about the Syrian BBC producer, Riami Dalati, Lord West, the former First Sea Lord, a retired UK Major General, John Shaw, Colonel Wilkinson, US Armed Forces Chief of Staff of Powell. David Stockman, the economic advisor to Reagan, Sir Peter Ford, the UK ambassador for Syria, all say it's a hoax, but it's not being reported.
1: Don't, don't forget the redoubtable, the dreadnought, Peter Hitchens in the, uh, of the Daily Mail. He's fought a single-handed battle for the truth about Duma, and his scars are plenty for having done it and now he's being vindicated. Ian, I need to press on. There's a poll, you've only got 15 minutes. I need you to vote right now. What will Boris Johnson's next child be called? A, Winston, I'd vote for that one. If it's a boy, it'll be Winston, trust me. 52%. B, Margaret, if it's a girl, it'll be Margaret. 19% or C, your choice. So. I need you to vote now, quickly, on my Twitter feed. What will Boris Johnson's child be called? A, Winston, B, Margaret, C, your choice. Let me know. And let me take a call now from Stuart in Kansas. Go ahead, Stuart.
8: Uh, howdy. So, George, I, I was look- a big fan, by the way. Thank I-, I was you. looking on uh, the Twitter trends in the United States in the- this morning when I first woke up, and the first trend I saw was dropout Bernie. And I understand he didn't win in South Carolina, you know. But, and I kept looking into it. There was no, like, major incident, you know. This was trending for no reason. Nothing really provoked this. And then I was looking around, and I I forgot where. And, by, by the way, dropout Bernie is still uh, in the United States, the seventh, the seventh trending thing. Wow. But I was seeing how the Michael Bloomberg campaign has been hiring uh, people on social media to, to post in favor of him, and, and it just got me thinking. Do you, do you think the, the billionaires in the United States and the capitalist class can be uh, manipulating these uh, I, I'm, social I'm absolutely media?
1: certain he has paid thousands of people to punt him, uh, influencers they're called, uh, on social media. I, I, I think there is no trick to which uh, Mr. Bloomberg will not stoop. Uh, And moreover, if Bernie is the nominee for the Democratic Party, I think that Bloomberg will run against him as an independent candidate, as a third-party candidate. So uh, get used to that one uh, also. Stuart, uh, nobody expected Bernie to win South Carolina. I certainly didn't didn't... expect Joe Biden to get 49% of the vote. I'm suspicious of it, I've got to tell you. But the Super uh, well, listen, Tuesday polls for Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, uh, Bernie uh, is miles ahead of everyone else. So why would there be a trending hashtag dropout Bernie, He's going to win. Exactly. He's going to win lock, stock, and battle on Tuesday.
8: And, like, listen, George, like, in Kansas, my job, or my old job, is I used to register people to vote. And a lot of those people were... Older Hispanic people, older Black people, and, and lots of these older Black voters—they may not be Bernie voters. Most old voters aren't in the United States, but there's—but I, I, at least me personally, when I was registering older Black voters here in Kansas and in, in my city, we have a pretty large Black population, especially in the neighborhoods that I I've worked been in. There.
1: I've given a speech in Kansas City.
8: Uh, I, I'm in Wichita, not Kansas City. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> Yeah. Wichita, sorry about that, you're, the but, Wichita um, you're the Wichita lineman. Okay, Stuart, uh, yeah, don't, be Sanders, don't, do, don't, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. Do call back. I need to take more calls. I've only got ten minutes. Tess is in Wales. Go ahead, Tess. Hi, George. How are you doing? Good, um, thank you. Nice to hear from you. What would you like to say?
9: Uh, yeah, just saying as your last call. Uh, listening to Rania earlier on. This is all quite depressing. It seems to me that we can see.
3: We're only getting
9: cheated a mile off, right? So if that happens, the, 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 world, is, the world is crazy, I can't cope. We've got Assange, we've, we've got I- I- India, we've got everything that's going on. How, wh- how, do we do, how do we deal with this? What do we do? How do we make this better?
1: Well, uh, I wish I knew, I wish I could. <laughs> uh, the first thing we have to do is properly analyse... Uh, everything that you uh, are seeing and talking about to properly characterize what's at work here, who's at work here, in whose interests things are happening. So you have to, the ontology is important, the proper characterization of all these forces that are working in the world. We need to build an alternative media to the media that is misleading people. And you're part of that. Uh, This show is part of that. Everyone watching or listening to this show is part of that. You've got to win new people to come and hear and watch it so that they too can understand things better. We need to spread our analysis, spread our agitation, spread our education. We need more conscious people if we're going to find our way out of this. Thanks for that, Tess. Breaking news. We've just heard from Sputnik News that two missiles have been fired in Baghdad in the last few minutes and they appear to have come down on the US embassy in the city. What should Boris Johnson's child be called? Uh, He'll possibly call it once a month. (laughs) Paul Cox says Don Johnson. Tess Delaney calls it distraction. Baron Ortega calls it crying the merciless. Ben's HD calls it Blair. Mr. Bojangles, Winston, girl or boy. End debt slavery, says Trump, Churchill and Trump. And David Frivolny says, I'd rather not answer as perhaps the offspring of some American born prime minister is not my business. However, given his infatuation with Churchill, it would not shock me to hear Winston's name is the one he chooses. I remember the deaths caused by Churchill in the First World War, says David. Uh, I think it will be Winston uh, if, he, if he wins. <laughs> if it's a boy, I'm getting tired. Uh, and I think it will be Margaret uh, if it's a girl brilliantly chosen, whoever did that poll. What will Boris Johnson's child be called? A, Winston. B, Margaret. C, your choice. Let's hear from Alex in California. Go ahead, Alex.
8: Hi. Hi. My name is Alex. I am from California, yeah. and I am a member of the Party of Communists USA. And I'm here to speak about one thing I've been critical of when it comes to your show is I'm kind of critical of your support of Bernie Sanders. Not, I'm not a neoliberal. I am not a neoliberal. I am critical of Sanders because of his support for the Democratic Party. And his support for a party that is clearly anti-working class. Like you're lucky, like British, like like you are lucky that you have a party in England that even that at least claims to support the working class. Like the Democrats don't even claim to support the working class. Yeah, go on. So that is my comment.
1: Yeah, you're and, cr- well. Best of luck in finding a different show uh, that is more to your. Uh, party of communist taste. Uh, that's all I've got to say to you because I've got more sensible people to talk to. Uh, and she's a legend. It's Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma.
9: Hello, George. Um, I, I actually am just going to say very quickly that I've learned so much from your programmes and I'm 82 on Wednesday.
1: Wow, 82, wow.
9: <laughs> and thank you for the inclusion and respect you've given me over the last few years. It's made me feel part of the community, and followed by my interesting Twitter account and my supporters. So really, I want to say, I'm happy to feel that Moats doesn't... There's no ageism in Moats. And that's it today.
1: Definitely not. Although we would no idea you were eighty-two, you sound far too
9: uh, sprightly. Know, I George.
1: hope. I hope. I hope I'm as sprightly as you when I'm eighty-two. <laughs> uh, how's your husband, by the way?
9: He's all right. Yes, he's all right. He's, he's up um, and about. Is
1: he taking you out for your eighty-second?
9: Yeah, yeah. We're going to a very smart restaurant for lunch, and then my sons are coming over for tea, and. Uh, Oh yes, we 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 can't walk very really well. I've got to stop coughing, George. But we should take a taxi and uh, enjoy ourselves.
1: And you're not still your fagash flow uh, on yeah. uh, on Twitter. I know because I follow you. Are you still smoking?
9: Yeah, sixty six years now.
1: <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> The doctors Um, will... It's bad. It's really bad. Yeah, yeah. And you're 82. You've been smoking for 66 years. And you're one of the brightest contributors to the mother of all talk shows, which is a university. Uh, So all I can say on behalf, I think, of all of the listeners and all of the viewers is to wish you the happiest of birthdays uh, this week for your 82nd and to wish you many... Happy returns. And Thanks. you must tell me that you will call the show every Sunday because we need your wisdom. <laughs> we absolutely no, need, no, no. We need your yeah. wisdom and a little bit of humour that you bring to the show uh, also. Everyone, follow her. Follow you. Follow, Thank you follow Norma on Twitter. Fagash Flow. It's a great name. Absolutely brilliant name. Uh, Just a time for a couple uh, of reads. Uh, I see Erdogan is again weaponizing migrants, threatening the EU with another wave. This after the EU paid him 6 billion euros to house them on the border. Erdogan is an Islamist and wants a new Ottoman empire. That's from Tony. Charlene in West Belfast says, I can't understand how these British and American liberal lovies still support Erdogan's proxies like HTS and Daesh. I, like so many others, have seen the horrific videos they produce where they torture and behead Syrian soldiers and civilians, even eating the entrails of these slain human beings. Great show, as always. Thank you, Charlene, for a beautiful message. Uh, Zona, on the other hand, says, Any chance Galloway can get some opposing views on his laughably called university instead of crawling up Putin's propaganda arse where no reasonable person takes seriously. Thanks for watching Zona. Uh, George, it's a strain of the flu. Take care, don't panic, says Kevin. And Dave from South Wales says you've made some great speeches in the past, but your speech on Tuesday night in defense of Julian Assange was nothing short of brilliant. Well done. Shame on our so-called mainstream media for their silence, or should I say cowardice. That's from Dave in South Wales. Dave, thank you very much for that. It's always better if you speak from the heart. Julian Assange is a very important person to me. I believe he's a world historic figure. He will be remembered long after the Rats, vermin that have tried to destroy him are forgotten. Julian Assange is the most important political prisoner on the planet. And I will give, if necessary, my last breath to calling out those unjustly imprisoning him. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, tell another listener, another viewer, come back.